Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Mark Henderson, who's the CEO of Laramide Resources. They're a uranium explorer and developer with assets in Utah and New Mexico and the US, and also with assets in Australia. They managed to raise some money mid-January, 4.5 million bucks to be exact, which was perfect timing before the market turned and the onset of COVID-19. We talked about what he's going to do with that money, uh, how he thinks the market is going to react, and indeed what he thought the nuclear fuel working group was going to be able to do for them before all of this happened. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Mark. How are you, sir? Very good, Matt. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Not too bad. You're at home like the rest of the world at the moment, are you? Everybody in Canada is mostly in their houses, Fantastic. as I'm sure you are in the UK. Oh, yeah. And that's probably a good, probably a good thing for another couple of weeks. And knock on wood, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully be coming out of this. Well, well, I hope, well, let's hope it is a couple of weeks, but um, I think, you know, most people are suspect it's going to go on a bit longer. Um, you know, people are predicting that, you know, we're locked down until September here, but um, a little bit of insight from a friend of ours who works in the health service, they're suggesting that potentially they may think about sending kids back to school for the second half of this term. So lots of conflicting information out there. Let's put it like that. Anyway, let's talk about you. So we met in December in London. You were sort of bouncing around there. Um, and I know you've got a few announcements and you raised, raised a bit of money. We'll talk about it. But let's kick off with that one minute summary for people new to this story. We are a uranium developer. We're one of a very small group of companies, as you know. It's a tiny universe of people that are left after the you know, nine-year bear market that we just went through a couple of weeks ago. It was actually March the ninth or 11 everyone in the nuclear industry knows where they were when fukushima happened as i'm sure people will in the future about this virus and uh as a result of that the number of companies and players in the space dwindled dramatically the price eventually went to the i think we've seen the lows now probably in the low 20s um and obviously nothing could get developed the development companies by definition can't do much when you don't have a price environment for development we went into the bear market with uh, a very good asset in Australia and a bunch of other assets, including a royalty in the US. Uh, we've come out of the bear market with uh, ownership of that property. We had the royalty in the US on now without the burden of a royalty. So we have two very large, meaningful, low part of the cost curve assets in great jurisdictions. And uh, we think we're a prime beneficiary when the Iranian market now gets into a better place, which I, I do think I mean, we've been, we talked to lots of investors. I've been hesitant in the last few years um, to say that it was over, you know, because Groundhog Day went on and on. But I, I honestly think we've seen, we've seen the bottom now. Yeah, I think a lot of people reacted and that some of the share prices, including yours, reacted last week um, when the spot price went up. I think it got up to what, 27.50, I think, on Friday. Um, and there's some expectations around that one. And, and again, let, we'll come on to that, but may, maybe let's, let's, Roll, roll back a few weeks to talk about things like when we last spoke, we were at high hopes for the nuclear fuel working group coming up with something to uh, change the fortunes of the industry. There was an announcement, a vague announcement about 150 million bucks a year for the next 10 years to be deployed somehow, somewhere to some people. Um, were you imagining yourself as one of the beneficiaries? Uh, absolutely. Well, we're in the Uranium Producers of America group, which is the group in the background that had been lobbying on this front. Um, 
I, I can't recall how much we touched on it in the interview we had before. You know, we weren't really reliant so much on that. It was kind of in the nice to have category, that that piece of the puzzle. I was much more about we need to see uranium at first, firstly $40 and then beyond. America has always been a relatively high cost producer. So a lot of what they needed was on the higher part of the cost curve to get their production back online. That process, you know, it started with 232 and everything else took a few twists and turns. It actually was coming to the conclusion where they had actually put it in the budget for next year. So, you know, in the event that Republicans and Democrats suddenly could get together and pass a budget bill in October, you know, it looked like that was going to happen at the level you talked about, which was 150 a year for, for 10 years, which is very meaningful. Uh, certainly a kickstart. Um, I can't tell you where that sits today. I don't think, I think that's kind of in limbo at the moment. Obviously, they're throwing tremendous amounts of money in every direction. Um, again, if that comes to pass, that I think that'll be terrific, probably good for us. Uh, they hadn't gotten to the details about how that procurement process would work, what the criteria are, whether they're going to do RFPs or how they were going to allocate whatever money they had to various companies. There probably only are realistically eight companies that could that could bid into that thing in any reasonable time frame, to be honest. Um, and maybe that'll happen and maybe it won't. But I, I think the more meaningful thing, and I, we spent a lot of time in the macro, and as I do, because, you know, even in good times, the macro matters a lot, and where you are in the cost curve obviously matters a lot for the utilities. But you know, when you're sub the price you need for anything to work, as we now see in oil, so you know we've now gone to a place where oil is exactly where uranium was, and they're probably going to go through the same kind of dynamic about who's going to be in good shape and who's not. Right, but you, you talked about eight players who could meaningfully. You, you're talking about eight U.S. players. Eight U.S. Well, I mean, I said before, I don't think there's more than 20 or 25 names who have real development projects that matter right. scale that can come on in the next, say, decade. Yeah. And then you winnow that down further and you get to maybe eight people in the U.S. who have projects that, that, that we know about that are basically developable, that have some numbers wrapped around them that say, you know, we can make X pounds at this price if you give us this much money and this much Well, let's, let's talk about that because, again, when we come and talk about your assets, which, you know, you've told me in December that you could get up and running if you press the button within a year, assuming price well, was, was right. I said a year, I think. I think you yeah. did. <laughs> but quickly. Um, well, for breaking ground, yes. But assuming we had a permit in our hand, yes. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Assuming the conditions are right and the yeah. permits are in our hand, but you, yeah. it would take a year to kind of get the thing up, up and running, right? That's what you said to me. Um, do you realistically think there are eight companies who could attach themselves to that nuclear fuel working group number of 150 million bucks for 10 years? Because surely, I mean, I guess the question is, what do you interpret that announcement to have meant? I mean, 1.5 billion is not a lot of money, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's a good start, but it's not a lot of money. So, you know, I would, I would say the people who could get into production quickly are going to benefit the most. When we get back to normality, let's assume. Um, and you know, eight are there eight U.S. players who could get into production any within the next two years? Uh, well, hard to know and hard to speculate on that because I mean, is it three million pounds at fifty dollars, two and a half million pounds at sixty dollars? Exactly. Big question. Are are they going to want to ensure that no company gets more than a quarter of the of the of yeah. the demand money, et cetera, et cetera? So yeah, no, I think in the in the fullness of time, there are probably eight companies that have projects that have 
Um, some of these things are things that have been turned off that can be turned back on. I mean, obviously the ISR stuff that's turned off probably comes back and gets turned on. That's the quickest thing to, to pounds in the can, as they say. Um, things like obviously Cigar Lake, when they turn it back on, it'll turn back on relatively quickly. But MacArthur, most people think that you don't switch that on overnight. They've lost a lot of people. It'll take a while. So even if the price signal suddenly gets to where, what we all need, the, the build is going to be slow back to, to getting uranium production up. I don't know, it was 135 pounds, 40 million pounds, something like that last year in a market that needs 180. You know, to get to 160, it's going to take you a while. No, I get it. Like, yeah, you, you, yeah you, definitely, you definitely hit some of the, the points I was going to ask you about, which, which, is, which is great. You, you know, you, you're more, than, more aware than I. But um, what, what the point I want to understand is there are a bunch of U.S. Uh, companies who are running on vapor. They've got no cash. They've, they haven't got the ability to raise cash. Uh, you know, so they're not going to be around in a year, let alone two years. So how do people like that get to the point where they may be the beneficiary of some longer term U.S. government uh, initiative? Or do you think that if the spot market does continue to recover, however slowly, they've got a chance? You think they will be able to raise capital? Yes, no, I'm a big believer in the capital market. So, you know, you, you, you take the price to a level that it needs to go to. Um, the valuations get better. People want to chase things that are working. The numbers will work. Uh, it's like sprinkling water on the desert. Flowers will grow. I mean, that, when I say we're down to the 20 or 25 names, I do not expect, especially with the price environment now turning around, I would not expect any of those names now to disappear. Now, is there going to be more dilution on the way to Nirvana, probably in a lot of these companies, they're going to have to raise other forms of capital. You know, I have no idea what the debt cost of capital is for some of these companies. But at the end of the day, you're, the, the thesis was always on the bigger assets was that it was always underpinned by utility contracts, which presumably are still valuable when you take them to the bank, you know, and that underpins on a bigger project. Like our project in Australia, our thesis there was always that we were going to have to underpin half of it with contracts. So you effectively hedged half your asset at some price, hopefully with base escalated contracts to capture a better environment. And that's why people don't want to start. And even Cameco, you know, they don't want to start at $30. They want to start at $40 because they, those contracts are the same for most of the, most of the players. So I, I do think most of the U S guys, I mean, some of them were getting in a tougher place because the folks who were shut down, they have more, friction costs than a company like us that never got going. I mean, had we gone and we were halfway up and we had a plant built and now you got to put it here in maintenance, that's a lot more expensive than you never got to that point in the development profile. Yeah, okay. I, I, I guess there's a, lot, there's a lot of moving parts there, but you're of the view yeah. that everyone's going to survive. Um, you know, we've spoken to people who think perhaps it's going to be a little bit of a struggle for a few names out there if this thing doesn't move before, you know, end of this year. Um, and some pretty big names as well. But like, um, let's talk about one of the other macro things which you touched on there, which is Cigar Lake, announcement by Cameco a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that got, I think it was done for the right reasons. I think people agree with that, but that got people pretty excited. Um, what did it do for you when you heard that? Um, well, I guess I was a little surprised, but I guess not surprised when I, when I you know, thought through it. And I think they did it 100% for the right reasons because, and I'm sure that was involuntary on Cameco's part, but necessary. I mean, every mining company, you know, safety first and any kind of real mining company, particularly ones working deep underground and things like that. But I mean, you're talking about 
a fly-in, fly-out operation in a remote part of the country with a probably a workforce that's maybe one-third indigenous. I mean, it's just obvious that's something that you better take offline until this um, conditions get better. And so I think some of the other places in the world where you have those kind of things, you're starting to see that happen. Like when we wrote that letter on Friday, you know, we sort of speculated there might be some stuff come offline. It was two days later, they've taken Namibia offline. So, you know, you've still got Olympic Dam up. That's 10 million pounds a year. Now, if they take that offline, you know, the, the, the demand, there's been no demand destruction. That's the key is that unlike everything else, there's no demand destruction in nuclear right now. And there won't be probably. This is not a, this is not a end of the world. This is a couple of months that everybody's down and the nuke stuff is gets shut down last in most, I would think in all, all virtually every place I can think of, can't imagine why they would turn off the baseload power. So Mark, tell me this, you know, with the announcement of Cigar Lake, I think the market perceived that as the uranium's white swan event, okay? They thought, well, this could be the beginning. If that shuts off the supply there, and with coronavirus affecting you know mines all around the world, you, you look at you talked about Olympic Dam there, but also Kazakhstan shutting down or closing down some or locking down some of the towns and cities in Kazakhstan. Again, people got excited by that, and I think quite a few of the uranium equities have seen a bump in price this week. I mean, what do you think people are hypothesizing there? Well, I think the uranium equities have always taken the lead for better or worse, frankly, from the spot market, because, you know, the term market is a little opaque. It's reported very late. You don't get that much direction. And the term market virtually throughout the whole history of the business has been higher than the spot market. But I think the, the reason that people look to the spot market increasing is we had this thesis where everybody knew that Cameco had to come to the market. So now they've got to come to the market in some, you know, not necessarily a huger way than they are more, much larger way than they were before, given, you know, if it's just a relatively short term shutdown, they haven't lost that much production. But I think it, you start to think of the follow on effects that, you know, that the American utilities, which were really relying on Canada and Kazakhstan now have to start thinking, hmm, maybe our, maybe our long term um, plan, procurement plan, just in time, let's try and save 50 cents on every pound, you know, might not be that smart. And maybe there's going to be an adjustment thinking about inventory. And I think when you think about this whole crisis as well that's going on, I mean, it's 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 not shocking that every Western country doesn't have a whole lot of ventilators lying around, but it is pretty shocking that no one has any personal protective equipment in any kind of uh, inventory state that would make sense in any kind of a crisis. And I think all that security of supply, supply chain thinking, I think is gonna get in every business now going forward. And I think Kazakhstan had kind of hit its normal, probably upper limit of probably in the past what Western utilities would have thought acceptable in a contract book. Like they were 35 or 40% of the newly mined production in the world. Like, are they going to go to 50%? Is that smart if you're a Western utility in, in the long run? Probably not. So I think the utilities, we always said we had to go to this incentive pricing to get new things online, to get more diversity in the supply. And I think the utilities you know, they were going along living a charmed life and everything else and doing quite well on the fuel cost side. And I just think that's probably going to start to change a little bit. And it, it doesn't have to change a lot. Like there is nothing, there's probably really not much at all in the spot market. And so now Cameco is telegraphed. They got to come for 10 million pounds and they're competing with presumably a few new players that come in. And, you know, the financial players that came in the last time when they saw an uptrend developing, 
they're not going to go, oh, no, we got to leave it there for the utilities. They're going to come in like the oil traders are putting oil on tankers and they're going to force the, everybody else to pay more. So some kind of contango probably develops that's pretty substantial and, and pretty actionable. And that's how the market gets stair stepped up to 40 bucks pretty quickly, in my view. Yeah, I would expect to hear that from you. And people like you, because you got to tell that story, right? But don't you think that the market for the last couple of years has been saying pretty much the same thing and called it wrong? I mean, how? And a few people have admitted we just didn't understand the amount of inventory available out there, which seems bizarre. It's such a small market, uranium, right, compared to copper, compared to gold. You know, so why why do you think people didn't appreciate the amount of either inventory out there of U three hundred eight? or the, the ability to use um, you know, EF6 or you know, EOR as, as, a, as a backup. I mean, obviously they're depleting in, the, in their own right, but it, the market seems to be quite opaque to an outsider looking, looking in. And you guys have been saying the same thing for two, three years now. So why is it gonna be right this year? No, no, I don't give that. You're 100% right. So we, we quit predicting quite a while back because this thesis about where the supply demand fundamentals were really only led to one conclusion that at some point it has to do what it looks like it appears to want to do now. We just didn't know when. We didn't know what the catalyst was, but we knew there'd be something and probably more realistically because the demand in nuclear, you know, was always, it had a bit of growth in it. And again, I come back to it's not really GDP correlated short and medium term. You know, you have a new plan, it's coming online, it's still going to come online. It was all about the supply side. So something had to happen on the supply side. And I think for the first time, we've seen something that not only really takes some supply out again, but forces people to rethink their view about what they'd be willing to pay. Because the other thing, when you talk about inventories, you're right, it is it, it is a bit of a black box in turn, and even the WNA and people like that, like you don't really get a good feeling about this is the answer reading the publications about where supply and demand are gonna meet and what the right price is and everything else. But you know what the you know you kind of know what the elements are, and one of the elements that happened was there's a huge inventory rundown by everybody. First by the utilities, and don't forget Cameco when they shut MacArthur, they had a huge uh, amount of inventory on their balance sheet which they ran down to nothing. So they sold all the inventory they had out, assuming that they would eventually then deliver into the contracts they have now by going to the spot market. They were sort of thinking, I'm sure that there wasn't going to be a lot of competition in the spot market. But I, mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, it's interesting because I did go back and I, I you know, I had a, read the pricey of what you had from our previous interview. And the thing that stuck out to me was the statement, the utilities have all the cards. And I think that has been right for a long, long time. And that's really the, the ultimate question. If, if that's still the case, then yeah, maybe this is a fa another false dawn. And if they don't, something interesting starting. Well, yeah, it, it, that, that's the piece of this jigsaw, but this big organic moving jigsaw puzzle that you guys inhabit is, is this white swan event truly a white swan event? Is it the beginning of something or is it just a blip, but it's going to revert as soon as people realize what the utilities possibly know, which is they, they're okay till the end of this year. And the other fallback situation for you guys, which was the nuclear fuel working group, being able to make a decision, they've been distracted quite rightly by COVID-19 and, and responding to that. They had an election coming up anyway that was going to get in the way. Was, this, was that just posturing and politics 
Um, you know, and was it realistic for uranium spot price to actually make any uh, sort of recovery, any meaningful recovery before the end of the year anyway? So these are the questions which I, I think people are, are, are um, toying with, trying to understand. Um, and I guess we will see in the next month or so, you know, where the utilities are, how they react, will they be buying? And I guess the big question is just how much inventory is out there, how much optionality is out there for the utilities. What's your bet? Well, you you mentioned the utilities and you talk about it as if it's monolithic, as it's as it's it's the buyer in the whole industry as the seller, and it's really made up of a lot of different people making different decisions. So one of the things that inhibited the recovery post Fukushima is you also had the whole nuclear power thing coming into question. You had Western utilities that really taking plants offline prematurely. So obviously they weren't going to have the same procurement strategy as they did before. And then you had China, which is still in a build-out phase. They've still got big growth ahead of them in, in nuclear. I think they're up to their 60 gig. That they thought they'd be by, by 2020. And there's a whole new announced plan for phase two. So they're, they're going to go higher. You know, the UAE is just turning on their plants. So those folks have a different procurement strategy. And in a lot of cases, they, you know, they, they, they have a vertically integrated strategy where, you know, China took their minds off, you know, they basically have their minds in Bibia. But again, you take those minds offline and maybe at the margin, China says, you know, maybe we'll, we don't want to, we don't want to run our inventory buffer down. We're going to go to the spot market to keep our inventory level where it was. And so Cameco had already telegraphed that they had to come into the spot market. And a lot of people were frustrated that they hadn't moved more aggressively. You know, if it had been Eric Sprott, the price would be $35 already because he would just take it there. You know, he's a trader and he'd just move it there. And then everybody else would be paying more. But, you know, companies don't think that way. And, you know, this will be a process. But we couldn't live with the the supply and demand dynamic we had. And I can't remember if I mentioned in the last interview, but, you know, I think the when you mentioned Cigar Lake, Cigar Lake is a short life asset in, in this world because given how long it takes to bring anything online, I think it's out this certainly this decade, maybe seven, eight years when they bring it back online. You know, we get 15 years of supply. Now, the utility buyer in a Western country who's closing his plants, he doesn't care about that or he or she doesn't care about that. But the, the people that are switching on 60-year plants probably have to have a different view about where they're going to get supply post 15 years from now. I mean, Kazakhstan, at their current rate, will burn through almost a billion pounds. I don't think there's another billion pounds behind behind that that I'm aware of. Certainly not at, certainly not at the quality of the first billion. Well, so, yeah, the, a, lot of, a lot of unknowns. I, I think the next month this month will reveal a few things to us um so i'm kind of i'm kind of interested to see how, how things play out um obviously COVID 19 is is getting in the way um you know for you guys um but yeah we, we we shall see look let's let's talk about your company that's what we're here for okay you got some stuff in yep. uh new mexico um, so yeah, New Mexico and Utah actually, and you've got the Australian stuff. But let's deal with the U.S. stuff because that's the the kind of quickest route to creating value, the quickest route to monetization, uh, the quickest route to shareholder recovery, right? So um, why don't you remind people about the, those projects first of all? Because you've got you've kind of got Hard Rock and ISR going on there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks, man. So yeah. No. So I'd say let's let's talk about the smallest one. 
that can be turned on the quickest because it has a permit. It needs to go to your uh, energy fuels mill in Utah. Uh, it's it's the classic American high cost thing that probably needs you know sixty dollars, fifty five, sixty dollars really before you before you do that. But it could produce half a million pounds for five or six years, and we'd obviously enter into need to enter some arrangement with energy fuels, which we had before back in 2013. We had a whole total milling contract. That is their business model. They, mm -hmm. they were always taking stuff from everywhere else. So to that extent, that U.S. Um, action by the administration would have been quite useful because that's a case where had we had a $60 contract, you would actually immediately go to get that going. Right. And it's very small money to get it going. It's $5 million or less because it's already developed right to the face. It's basically just a, it's basically a custom mining operation, putting it in trucks and sending it to their mill. And so that's something that could come online relatively quickly. But again, energy fuels needs to have a, a backdrop where they can afford to run the mill, you know, on, on anything other than a st stop start basis. And I think that's, and they've been the big driver behind to their credit to the, to, to try and get this American thing so that the American production doesn't go to zero. And they have a big asset there, which I don't think really the administration does not want to see the last mill in a hard rock mill in America close. So, you know, that'd be something that would happen relatively quickly and could be a nice little, um, you know, starter starter sort of operation. The ISR uh, thing at Church Rock will take a bit longer. Uh, we would get, a, we would start moving immediately on that. So, you know, I think I think I said before, once we sort of see $35, $40, I think you start getting serious about getting these things moving quicker. And so that, that would be the thing definitely because of the low capital cost nature of it, low operating cost nature of it, you would want to start that uh, first. Yes, yeah, so what, what intrigued me about that, the ISR obviously is, is going to be cheaper. You, you, we're talking about cash costs of 20 bucks, um, wanting to operate it in around the 40s somewhere would be a good price. And I think also you felt at the time that it would probably, we would probably, prior to you know, COVID 19, you know, be in around the 40s for a while because that would suit some of the couple of the large players uh, in, in the space. It suits you too at, at those sorts of prices. And with a 30 million capex it's not that's not prohibitive it's it's not you know it's not 1.2 billion which you know Correct. we're seeing up in uh, saskatchewan with, with a couple of players up there so you could get and what was that that was around a million pounds initially was it rising to three yeah it start, it, you know there's a there's a very large resource there 50 million pounds but it starts it's sequential because these well fields you start sequentially and the nature of it too is i think we're, we're required because we have an energy license we're required to demonstrate to some level uh, satisfactory restoration on phase one before you can um, ramp up phase two, that that sort of thing. Yeah. That's built into the existing federal permitting. And so, and, and most ISRs are, are tend to be in that category. It's hard to take many ISRs beyond about 3 million pounds. Even Cameco's, which arguably had the, the, the pick back in the day in Wyoming, I think they, at Smith Ranch, were maybe at 2 million pounds a year. There's a natural rate at which these I, ISR things are are the right mix of capital and operating cost and and, and production scale. I know that's um sorry I forgot which one's got the PEA on it. Um, Westmoreland in Australia is a big, is a totally different thing. Right, it's okay. a much bigger. Okay, but we'll come on to that because you need money for that. But just dealing with the US thing, so you you you're, with the smaller project, you need there's one permit outstanding. Is that is that what you just said? LaSalle in Utah basically would is is ready to go to the EFR mill when the price and the conditions would warrant and and it's kind of a natural and it would be helpful I think it would be helpful 
for them in terms of have because it's 500 let's say 500,000 pounds a year if they could if they could get that mill going at, at let's say a two million pound a year level i think everybody makes money we get some production going i mean u.s production went to i think it may be at zero now but i mean it's been at levels that has been falling for years and years yeah so have you had so just again let's stay on the south um have you had discussions with energy fuels about you know it's a long ways off but you know are you are friendly terms let's put it that way Oh yeah, no, very much so. No, I mean, I, I know Mark. I know Mark Chalmers very well. Okay, yeah. okay, because obviously yeah. and, and before, we we actually with the pre when Steve Anthony was president before we we back in 2013 I believe when we didn't know that we were in a nine year bear market and we all thought it was going to be over in a year or two. We we have a custom milling contract on the shelf specifically around how that thing would be toll milled through that particular plant. And the one thing we have because in that in that. Uh, Colorado Belt. We do. There's a lot of stuff with byproduct vanadium in it. Our our project has no vanadium, so we were able to run the thing without running the vanadium circuit. So it, you know, the contract took into account all those sorts of things. Now the cut. Listen, the custom miller in any business, you know, gold or any of these other things, the you know, the, they make a lot of money if they. Yeah, they, but they they also in a way really favorable to them. But yeah, there's enough in it that that, that this is this would be a very worthwhile exercise for Larry. Yeah, they, they they can control your margins as well. Um, I guess he who controls the mill, right? Um, okay, so so that's LaSalle, but with with, with Church Rock and Crown Point, um, that I mean, obviously that's that's the biggie. That's the one you'd want to get people to pay attention to. That's the one you'd want funded and, and, and start the process. What's the, what's the what would be the plan? Let's say if if price does move. To near the $40, $40 mark, you're, you're, you suspect you're going to be able to raise the capital for sure. What's the plan you'd be going to the market uh, describing? Just just phase one and then we'll self-fund phase two? Or what's it well, we, like? we, the last step in this, we need, we need to do um, some test work in order to get the New Mexico state permits. This is restoration-based test work. Um, we need to do some drilling to do that. We're also going to, as a result of that drilling, we're going to uh, be able to get a PEA done finally on the on the asset, which we need. I think the market really wants to see that. This was always capital constrained. Uh, we went and raised money to finish the purchase of the asset in January. So we raised enough money that we're good on the finance front for nine to 12 months without any issues. Um, I do think on the next incremental capital raise, we're going to, uh, the, the drill will be rolling out as soon as you're allowed to put a drill in the field and this spring and then this process will just start and then we start the timeline so we're going to start now on the permitting timeline on that anyway because we don't want to lose any time now and so we're going to definitely small money from here to you know finalization of the permits on for for uh, church rock is probably on the order of something like two million dollars it's not a lot of money mm -hmm. and so we just want to get that done get knock off that last permit and be ready Right. So as soon as you get that permit, you're doing what precisely? What's the, what's the first thing you do? Well, as soon as we got that permit, you go build a well field. I mean, there's a cook. Th these are to some degree, you know, this has been done. The technology, th these things are old tech, really. Right. Unless there's some complication with your ore body, you know, and, it, and, you, and you can't produce from an ISR methodology, which we know we already can from these particular formations. So you know it's a it's a it's a standardized thing there's almost a standardized um setup that you use for these things that's that's why you can cost something to a relatively tight degree even without knowing necessarily what your ore body is because it's basically a pumping well field operation and that's your capex mostly in that and 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 the other thing is it's in the depth of the 
wells that you drill and the well field pattern that you need to drill. So, you know, bigger, thicker, ore bodies with more grade are better than skinny things that wander all over the place that need tons of drill holes to drill up an incremental million pounds. And, and you know, in the United States, you have both of those type of assets. Every asset, you know, every ore body is not created equally and ISR is no different. There's a reason that Kazakh's the biggest producer in the world. Okay, you raised some money in January, 4.5 million bucks. Uh, quite expensive money, right? The cost of capital has did not contract during the bear market. That is for sure. I'm hoping now it's going to go in the other direction. And we've been, you know, we've been pretty cautious, pretty prudent with the with the capital structure. You know, I'm a big shareholder, so you know, I eat my own cooking, and I'm really I'm really well aware of that. And I think my shareholder base knows that. And so, yeah, no, it was really expensive capital, and so. And there wasn't a lot of point in spending a lot of money until you really had these price signals. That's why I spent so much time on the macro because it didn't really matter. You know, you weren't going to build your mine at $25. So yeah, that was expensive money. I think it gets cheaper from here. There, the one thing we have in our capital structure that, that's been put in place as a result of the various deals we've done in the last probably really th through this whole exercise of buying Church Rock, which was a latter thing with payments. Um, there's a series of warrants that are out there and step up warrants that come in at various prices. So, you know, the light, the latest round was painful, but, um, and the lead, the lead really wanted to see this. He wanted that, 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 uh, shareholder wanted to ensure that as the market got better, that more, everybody knew money would come in and this whole overhang issue w wouldn't be on anybody's mind. So. I think that's a good thing. So at 30 cents now, we start having meaningful amounts of warrant money come in that basically will fund you to shovel ready. Okay, okay. And you've also um, renegotiated with the extract capital as well. So you've been taking care of it of housekeeping while things are quiet. Yes, because we, again, we, again, we didn't want anybody to look at the at the balance sheet and have the, the, the debt or the capital structure be an impediment to them wanting to participate. And so now I think you can do that with, you know, impunity come in look at the balance sheet the, the you know there's a balloon payment in 2023 now and so i sure hope we're not sitting here in 2022 hoping for the market to go up and you know because that would be a problem but yeah i think we're far enough in the process now that i, I can you know i can see that the development stuff is probably going to start to to get moving yeah well crikey for here in 2022 i mean this discussion i think you'll have to go and learn about gold right you have to <laughs> so, well, we'll be cycling through the periodic table. I mean, we, we yeah. do that. We do that from time to time in the mining business. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. OK. OK, so like, you've been taking care of housekeeping with regards to the finances and putting yourself in the best position you can, given the market, given your share price, given your market cap, you know, which is up to where are we at? Twenty five million. No, yeah. Thirty. Sorry, thirty eight million bucks uh, as of today. Um, you know, you, you've seen you, you've seen better days. Uh, you've been at uh, some extraordinary numbers when I guess you were getting a lot of value for uh, pounds in the ground. Which is, do you think that model's going to uh, be around in, in, in a uh, bull market? Pounds in the ground does that work anymore? Um, I think as a basis to value things when you can't use production models and nav and things like that. I think it is useful in a bear market. Of course, it goes to an unfathomably low number. You know, do we now go to a number like, let's say, to start with a dollar a pound in the ground instead of 25 cents or whatever we were trading at at the lows? I think it's not a bad way to do 
comparables across the peer group. I mean, you have to do something. You need some kind of a metric when you can't use the other valuations because otherwise everybody just picks the number. And the industry got criticized a bit. Oh, let's use $65. Well, everything works at $65 pretty much. And so, yes, I, I, I think it's not a bad, I think it's not a bad metric because, you know, we have a lot more pounds per share than other companies because we really have 120 million pounds that are all pounds that conceivably one day will be get produced. So okay. I, I do think that matters. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just, I just, I, 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 it's almost like the rules seem to be changing and evolving within the uranium space in terms of how you judge investability of, of, of a company these days and you know on the institutional side yeah pounds in the ground was was the way uh you know back in the back in the day and i think there's there's too many too many other unknowns here which um i think alex like just changing the rules a bit um let's talk about australia because last time we talked i think we agreed that perhaps australia was obviously not foremost on uh in in your mind it, it's a it's a big opportunity and it hasn't cost you a lot, but you're not going to spend a lot of time, money or effort on it yet. Has anything changed? Uh, no, I don't think so, other than we've really done all the, the, the housekeeping things we need to do to make sure that that asset is preserved for the long haul. We we also incrementally added a huge greenfield project next door that we're excited about and want to get to work on that because obviously the whole district there and it's two or three times the scale. It gets more interesting. Um, I can't remember if when we talked that Australia was going through this exercise, which they periodically do, uh, sort of a national naval gazing about coal and nuclear and et cetera, because the globe is quite annoyed with them about their continued production of coal, um, even though they don't use it as much domestically. And so, yeah, there's some possibility in the long run that the, the politics get super favorable there yeah i don't know we need we need we need state politics there to be in our favor in order to make it happen i do think there's a good chance that's going to happen there's an election in the fall this again this is an asset that one day that asset for sure is an asset that one day will get produced because if you put it up against all the other things that are out there you know it's clearly a great a, a great asset low technical risk low part of the cost curve you know it's an ex rio tinto asset as is the asset we bought next door the greenfield asset so yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm getting more excited about that because I can see the, the, the possibility in Australia of the politics really coming right. And, you know, maybe they even embrace nuclear to some degree. I think they're going to they're gonna be called on to do it in terms of, which they already do. I mean, obviously they export, you know, they had the three mines policy in the past and what have you. And so I do think if they could get a national um, point of view about this, it would be helpful. And obviously that would help us. Having said that, we, when you talked about the valuation we had in the past in a bull market, um, we had a $700 million valuation basically on that asset when the three mines policy was in place and we were in a place that wasn't one of the places you could mine. So that's back to the, you know, what a pounds in the ground trade at in a bull market. We know people tend to dismiss, start dismissing all the risk factors on the assumption that, well, those will get sorted. And so, and whereas in a bear market, they just assume nothing's going to get sorted, and you're all going bankrupt. Well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's what makes a market. You know? That's what makes it fun, if you could call it that. Um, hey, Mark. Well, look. Thanks. Thanks for that run through. Um, it feels to me like you guys have, are hoping that this uh, bump in the price last week sustains. You need it to get to forty to get your first project 
going and to be able to have those useful conversations with funders. Um, I think there are some generalists now starting to look at uranium off the back of last week's movement. Uh, I hope it continues. But look, um, stay in touch. Let us know how you're getting on. You got you got a lot of uh, you got a lot of projects. Um, you've got a finite amount of uh, money there. So um, I'd be interested to see how you get on in the next quarter. Yeah, no, appreciate it, Matt. No, and as as I said, we're we're going to be careful. I mean, the one thing, you know, when they do sprinkle that water in the desert, things happen. Money comes in. The, you know, the personnel ex- the roster expands, things start to happen. I mean, that's the way we've approached it. And because, you know, not, that was an extraordinary long bear market. Yeah. And I do believe that it's finally over. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com. And of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.